Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to extend our essential series another couple of weeks, this week and next. Um, elders just felt like we needed to dive a little deeper into a couple of things than we've been able to in four weeks. So we're going to do that today and next week. And then we're going to start the book of Nehemiah. We're going to start working through the book of Nehemiah as construction begins here on our facility. And that's going to be fun. We'll, uh, we'll look forward to that. Um, so here's what we've done so far. We've covered the authority of Scripture We've talked about that, that the Bible is our final authority. Uh, the next week we ask the question, who is God? What does the Bible tell us about God and what he's like and his plan, his purpose? The following week we ask the question, who are we? What is man? If, once you understand who God is, that question flows naturally. Who, what is man? What, why, would man even, why would God even be mindful of us. And then last week, Pastor Keith did a great job talking about salvation that God has brought through his son, Jesus Christ, and some different aspects of that. So here's where we're going this week. I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? You realize that's the most important question. Who is Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? There's a lot of people that have ideas about God, higher beings, divine entities. But the real question is, who is Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? I ended up in a conversation in a restaurant not that long ago with a guy who was eavesdropping on my lunch with somebody else. You may have anybody do that to you. Uh, he was eavesdropping on my lunch, and I, I was talking with someone about some of the recent sermons that I'd preached, and so he started firing questions at me, and he had some really whacked-out views about God and about life and why we're all here. I won't go into all the detail of that. But the question I kept asking him was, who's Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? That's the question. If we're going to launch from Scripture, you've got to answer the question, who is this Jesus? Because if we, if we don't get that right, or, or if you try to ignore that question, you realize, you understand, Jesus is either who he said he was, or he's crazy, or he's a liar. That's what C.S. Lewis said. There's no in-between with that. He's not just a good person or a moral figure in history that we can sort of play patty cake with. He is either the Lord of heaven and earth, the Son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity, whom the Bible says upholds the universe by the word of his power, who died and rose again, defeating death, and is the only way for salvation. Or he's somebody we need to dismiss with the likes of Hitler. You follow me? So who is Jesus? Particularly, what does it mean that Jesus, who is the Son of the living God, became man? That's what I want to explore with you today. The technical term for it is the incarnation. The Son of God becoming a man. How does that work and what does it mean for us? Philippians chapter 2. Let me start in verse 5. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter. 
to the Philippians, and he says this. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, now he's going to talk about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, everybody say therefore. So because of everything he's just said, here's what's true. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Master, Ruler, King, to the glory of God the Father. That's huge, isn't it? That's massive. Lord, would you bless the reading of your word and give us ears to hear in Jesus' name. The incarnation of Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, becoming man, is the greatest miracle in human history. Even above the resurrection, I think. Even above Jesus raising a man named Lazarus from the dead, the incarnation is the greatest miracle ever. Why do I say it's so great? There there are lots of reasons why it's great. But just stop and think about this with me, is that Jesus, the Bible says, was in the beginning with God and nothing was made except that which was made by him. So Jesus owns everything. We agree on that? If that's true about him, he owns everything. The whole universe belongs to him, and yet he came as a man and had to borrow everything. He was born in a borrowed stable. He never owned a home. He borrowed boats to travel with and to preach from. When he rode into Jerusalem for the last time, he borrowed a donkey. When he had the last supper with his disciples, he borrowed a room. And when he died, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. He owned everything, but he came and had to borrow everything. Not only that, but he rules over everything. He's Lord over everything, and he came as a servant. Jesus traded the praise of angels to come here and be spit on by men. He set aside the glory of heaven and came here and was ignored by those he came to save, reviled by those he came to save, mocked by those he came to save, and ultimately killed. That's who Jesus is. Not only that, but the Bible says he created everything and he became part of creation. This this is what makes it more amazing to me than almost anything else, is that Jesus fully took on humanity without compromising his godness. Does that blow anybody's mind except mine? How does that even happen that he fully took on the effects of the fall without succumbing to the sin of the fall? In other words, he could feel pain, rejection, betrayal, 
He got hungry. He got thirsty. He had to sleep. He died at age 33 and a half-ish. So I don't know if he had gotten old enough to where his knees hurt or his lower back hurt. I'm 41 now, and about every other morning I get out of bed, and my lower back feels like a two-by-four. Anybody identify with that? Okay. He felt these things. He fully took on flesh like us. Have you ever made this statement in frustration or in your hurt or in your confusion? Nobody gets me. Nobody understands what I'm going through. Nobody feels what I'm feeling. Nobody's been through what I'm going through. No one understands. Can I tell you something? Jesus, the Son of the living God, the eternal Son of the living God gets you because he fully took on flesh. And that's what makes it such a great miracle. How does that happen? Paul helps us in Philippians 2. Go back to verse 6. How did this happen? How is it possible for Jesus to fully take on humanity without compromising his godness? How is that possible? Verse 6 again. Though he was in the form of God. Everybody say form. Form. Come on, say it like you mean it now. Form. All right. This is second service. Y'all should be a little more awake. In the form of God. Here's what that word means. It means that Jesus is the very substance of God. In his essence, he is God. That's who he is. He's always been God, and he will always be God. That's never going to change. He is God. That's his essence, Jesus in the form of God. Verse 7. But he made himself nothing, and taking on the form of a servant. That's the same word. So in other words, when Jesus, the Son of God, came to serve, he didn't have to force it. He wasn't acting out of character. Have you ever endeavored to serve someone and you had to try really hard to have a good attitude? Jesus didn't. Because that is his essence. In the same way that his essence, his substance is God, so is he a servant. But then watch this. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Everybody say likeness. Here's what that means. The word means resemblance. In other words, if you would have been there during Jesus' earthly ministry, you would have looked at him and you would have said, he's a man. He looks like a man. He walks and talks, sits, stands, eats, breathes like a man. Okay? He looked like a man. It, there, there was, he didn't float six inches above the ground while he was on earth. Okay? He was really a man. During his childhood, he looked like a man child. He didn't go around bending spoons with his mind or causing pigs to fly. Okay? He walked and talked and breathed like a man. And there were undoubtedly many, many, many people who looked at him and simply thought to themselves, he's a man. Nothing more, nothing less. He looked like a man. Let's keep going. Verse 8. 
And then look at this. And being found in human form. Everybody say form. It's a different Greek word. And here's what it means. It means that Jesus, track with me, okay? Can y'all think a little bit this morning? Being in the form of God, his essence and his substance is God. Okay? That's who he is. He looked like a man, but it wasn't a mirage. He really, genuinely, authentically took on humanity. It was real. And he did that without compromising his essence. Y'all looking at me like, what? Come on, you, you tracking with me? Very essence of God. He looked like a man, but he didn't just look like a man. He really was a man. You with me? So how does that work? Go back to verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, we understand what that means, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, his essence is God, but he didn't clutch. That's what that word means. He didn't clutch onto the privileges and the honor and the glory that comes along with him being God. He didn't cling to it. He didn't hold on to it. Instead, here's what he did. Verse 7, he made himself nothing. And here's what that means in the Greek is that he emptied himself. His essence is God, but instead of filling himself up, he emptied himself. He emptied himself, made himself nothing, took on the form of a servant, and was born in the likeness of man. It's the self-renunciation. Of God the Son. It's a very graphic description is that he emptied himself. And what does that mean? What does it mean that he emptied himself? Here, here's what I can tell you it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that he gave up his divine essence. He did not cease to be who he was. This is subtraction by addition, not addition by subtraction. Are y'all with me? <laughs> He emptied. Here's the best way I know how to describe it. I am, I'm a man. I'm a male. Okay? That's who I am. I know there's a lot of crazy stuff going around about gender these days. I'm not going to get into all that. But let me just say, I'm a man. I was born a man. I'll always be a man. That's not going to change. It doesn't matter what I put on. Doesn't matter how I act. Doesn't matter what I think. The reality is I'm a man. Okay? Now, I didn't always look like this. I wasn't always six foot two and two hundred pounds. I wasn't always bald. Believe it or not. I was born bald, but then I had hair for a brief period of my history. I was conceived as an embryo, but I was still a man. You with me? I was born as a baby, 8 pounds, 13 ounces, completely bald. I grew, became a toddler, eventually a teenager. I'm not trying to be crude. I went through puberty, right? Entered my early adult years, into my middle age years, 
lost the hair on my head, started growing it in other places that I don't want it to grow. I'm a man. My wife is laughing too hard up here. I'm a man. That's who I am. But my form has changed. Right? Jesus did not cease to be who he is. But that's what makes this such a great miracle is that retaining his essence as God, he fully took on humanity. And you might be asking the question, Bradley, why are you hammering this? Why is this so important? Verse 9, therefore, what is that therefore, therefore? Everything he's just said is what he's about to say is built on. What has he just said? Jesus is God. That's his essence. It is his essence to also serve. He took on humanity. He looked like a man. He really was a man without compromising his deity, without compromising his godness. He really was a man. Therefore, what? God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. Can I tell you something? Without the incarnation, there is no salvation. Without Jesus, the Son of God, fully taking on humanity, without compromising His godness, we have no hope. Not only that, but we have no frame of reference with which to understand this new life that we now have in Christ. Did you hear what Mary read during worship from Galatians? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We could quote scripture all day. If any man is in Christ, he is a new. The old has passed away. Everything has become new. We have new life in Christ. And how many of you understand that new life is a life that is similar. It looks like it is the same kind of life that Jesus lived. We could not identify with Jesus. We wouldn't even really know how to follow him had we not understood he fully took on flesh. But he was still God. How did Jesus live his life? Let's ask that question, okay? How did he live his life as a child? Luke chapter 2. Can you go there with me? How did he live his life as a child? Luke chapter 2, verse 39. Luke chapter 2, verse 39. Here's how Jesus lived his life as a child. There's a few children in here. Watch this. You're going to really get to identify with Jesus right here. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. He grew. He became strong. Filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Here's what it means that he grew. 
That word is physical. He grew. He got bigger. He felt growing pains. I don't know about you, but this is so... I just get overwhelmed with joy when I think about this truth about Jesus. He felt growing pains. He experienced childhood like I experienced childhood. He was not laying in the manger as an infant, having just been born, lying there thinking to himself, I wonder what Moses is doing. I wonder what the angels are up to. He really became a baby. He had to learn to walk. He cut teeth. I'm not sure what they did for diapers back then, but he had to have his diaper changed. You know how C.S. Lewis describes the incarnation? He said it's like the Son of God became a deep sea diver. And he dove out of the boat of heaven all the way to the bottom with the sludge and the algae. He fully took on humanity. And he had to grow physically. He went through puberty. Probably had a zit or two or four or twelve. So he grew. And then it says he became strong. That, is, that word points us to his growth spiritually. Anybody ever struggled growing spiritually? Come on, somebody. You ever struggled growing spiritually? You ever had questions? Jesus grew spiritually. He asked questions. We're going to see that in the Bible in just a minute. He asked questions. And I don't think he was just playing games and like, I'm going to let these people think I don't know what I'm talking about. He genuinely had to learn and grow spiritually. And then it says he was filled with wisdom. And I looked that word up. And you know what's so fascinating about that word? Is that it says to us that his wisdom was appropriate for his age. Now, I think Jesus was undoubtedly a smart kid and people recognize that. But his wisdom, he somehow, and this is one of the most amazing things about the incarnation that, I, to be honest with you, I can't fully get my mind around. But Jesus somehow set aside or restrained, might be a better word, his omniscience, his all-knowingness when he took on humanity and became a child. So he was growing in wisdom. And when he interacted with people, I don't think people looked at him and went, oh, that's the divine son of God. Has to be. No, he was growing in wisdom. And then it says, and the favor of God was upon him. He was experiencing in real time the goodness and kindness of God and coming to depend and celebrate God's goodness and kindness towards him. Jesus grew up just like we did. He experienced life and childhood just like we did. And there's some of you that are sitting in this room right now and you look back on your childhood and there are things that you just can't seem to get past. There are things that you think no one understands about you that are still plaguing you to this day. Can I tell you, Jesus experienced childhood fully. And he understands. What about as he became a man? 
We all know what it's like when we exit our childhood years. Some of you are in this transition right now. You're coming to the end of your teenage years, maybe into your early 20s, and you're asking this question, who am I? And you know all too well what it's like to, have, to be bombarded by all manner of ideas and arguments and philosophies in this world that cause you to question your identity. How did Jesus deal with that? Flip over a couple of pages to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. I noticed something here that I, I'd really never thought about. Verse 21, And now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. How many of you have heard the story of Jesus' baptism before? Okay, most of you. So when I've read this before, I've always thought that when the Father spoke from heaven, that was for the benefit of everybody that witnessed his baptism. So everybody would know this is Jesus, the Son of God, right? Here's what I noticed this week. Who's the Father addressing? For whose benefit is the Father speaking? kind of want to pause there and think for a minute, don't you? Jesus' baptism is recorded in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in all three accounts, the emphasis is placed on what Jesus saw and what Jesus heard. Did he need to hear his father say, you are my son? Was this a formality? Was this just a part of the plan that Jesus just had to walk through? Or did he really need to hear it? I stopped and I asked that question and I meditated on it and then I kept reading. Can I tell you a little helpful hint? When, you, when you're reading the scripture and something just grabs a hold of you and you're, 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 you're just like, man, what is that about? Keep reading. Keep thinking, keep meditating, ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Watch what happens. Turn the page to chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus has just come out of the waters of baptism, heard his father say, you are my son. And watch this. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the, in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry, and the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, wow. Jesus' ministry is just getting started. He's just heard the Father say, You are my Son. He goes into the wilderness, and the devil tempts him with this first, If you are. Question of his identity. And I know I, just about everybody in this room has faced that. Particularly those of you that are entering your early adult years. In some way or the no, another, the devil has tried to plant the seed of doubt in your mind about whether or not you're a child of God 
about who you are in Christ and who God has called you to be and what he's called you to do. Can I tell you something? Jesus experienced that. And the question is, how did he handle it? Let's keep reading. What does he say? The devil says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written. Can we say that together? It is written. I read that and it reminds me of Psalm 119 where the Bible says this, I have stored up your word, where? In my heart that I might not You know, Jesus stored the word up. And because of that, he was ready for this. And he says, man does not live by bread alone. But Matthew finishes the statement for us, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You know what? One of the biggest battles we're going to fight in this life, we are fighting in this life, is the battle with the cravings of our flesh. And the cravings of our flesh are many. We want affirmation. We want acceptance. We want to feel good. We want to eat. We want to be sustained. We want to have our needs met. We want money. We want stuff. We could go on and on all day. The cravings of our flesh. But here, listen, Jesus came to provide us with a new kind of life, didn't he? And that life is not lived by bread alone. God promises us that he understands that we have needs. He knows what we need before we even ask. But here's the truth. For the Christian, for the redeemed in Christ, the new creations, we don't live by bread alone. We live by the word of God. We store it up that we might not sin. That's what Jesus did. That's how Jesus entered his adult years. That's how he began his ministry is by dependence, real dependence on what his father had said. I think Jesus needed to hear that. He needed to hear you are my son. What about when it comes to his purpose? Fulfilling his purpose. What about when Jesus came to that point where he's at the end of himself and it's the denial of self that's required? We understand that about the Christian life, that that's true, is it's we find our life by losing it. How did Jesus navigate that? Let's turn to Luke chapter 9. This is where we'll end this morning. Luke chapter 9, verse 21. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded his disciples to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So by this point, Jesus knows who he is and he knows what he's on earth to do and he knows that he is literally going to save by losing his life. 
He is literally going to take up his cross. He's literally going to be betrayed. He's literally going to be mocked. He's literally going to be killed. He knows that. He knows that's coming. He knows that's his purpose. So he's talking about himself. But then let's keep reading. Verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me. Another way to say that is, hey, if you're go- this is what's going to happen to me. This is why I'm here. This is what I'm here to do. And if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be a Christian, that term hadn't been coined yet, but that's really the essence of what he's saying. If you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to be a Christ follower, if you're going to be my disciple, what? Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Here's what I think that means. You're going to have to give up life on your terms. It's not life on your terms. Following Christ is not life on your terms. It's following Christ with His terms, what the Father has planned. And here's where that leads us. Verse 24, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So following Christ, giving up your terms... and accepting His brings you to this place. It brings you to the end of yourself. It brings you to the place where if you're going to find life that is truly life, you're going to have to lay down your terms and accept and embrace and celebrate God's plan for you. God's life for you. And I can promise you it's better. That's why I think Jesus says if you want to save your life, you lose it. You lay it down. It's not about you. It's about the glory of God. Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you're going to come to the end of yourself. And boy, we don't like that, do we? We push back. We don't want to deny. We don't want to accept those terms. We push back. How do we overcome that? How many of you want to live? Raise your hand. I want to live. How many of you want joy? I want joy. And God promises all of that in this new life that we have in Christ. It just comes at the expense of your terms. It comes at the expense of surrender and saying, God, here's my life. You made me. You own me. You make me what you want me to be, and in that, it's why our mission statement here at Res is that we see a church where people discover life through what? Knowing and following Jesus. But we need some help because it's hard to get over that hump where we push back and say, I, I don't want to deny. I don't want to love my spouse when they're not meeting my needs. I don't want to forsake the pursuit of things and stuff at the expense of, or so that I can put the needs of others and the interests of others ahead of my own. That's counter to our culture, isn't it? We need some help with that. Do you think Jesus needed help with that? 
let's, let's, let's ask the question. Look at verse 28. Jesus need help with that. Now, about eight days after these sayings, what sayings? I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. And if you want to come after me, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. So after saying that, he took with him Peter, James, and John and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. The word means exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This is amazing, isn't it? Why did this happen? That's the question I ask. Why? Why all this? Why does Jesus go up to the mountain to pray after saying all this? Why is he praying? Is prayer a formality for him? Does he he really not need to pray? Is he just praying so that Peter, James, and John could see him pray? And look, I don't need to do this, but y'all need to know how to do this. So just, I'm going to do it. And does he really need to pray? Why does his appearance change? Why does his clothes change? Why do Moses and Elijah show up and start talking with him about what's about to happen in Jerusalem? Certainly that's for the benefit of Peter, James, and John, right? Next verse. Verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. They're not even aware. You keep reading and they wake up and Moses and Elijah are on the way out. For whose benefit is this happening? Do you think Jesus needed to pray? Yeah, he needed to pray. Don't make the mistake of thinking that just because Jesus knew what he was on earth to do, just because he knew who his father was, he knew who he was, he knew what was going to be accomplished by his suffering and his death. Don't think that because he knew all of that, that he didn't struggle with dread about the upcoming betrayal. Don't think that he didn't struggle with angst about the pain he was going to endure because his death was going to be by horrific torture. Don't think that when he got to the Garden of Gethsemane and he knelt down and prayed and the Bible says he sweat as of drops of blood that that was just a show. He was overwhelmed. You ever been overwhelmed? You ever cried out to God and said, I can't do this. I can't bear this weight. Jesus gets it. He felt it. He had to pray. And I think His appearance changed and his clothes became as dazzling white because God the Father peeled back the veil of the flesh he took on. And Jesus tasted the glory of his essence as the Son of God. And Moses and Elijah show up and they talk about what's about to happen and the victory that's going to be won. I think Jesus needed that it doesn't compromise 
Jesus' glory as the Son of God to recognize that he fully took on humanity. That he felt what we feel. That he understands where you are. And his desire is not simply just to comfort you and pat you on the head and say it's going to be okay. He actually wants to empower you to live the life that he died for you to have. He wants to empower you to live a life that's not driven by the cravings of your flesh, but it's driven by something greater. Bradley, why not just indulge my flesh? Why not just live my life and, and, and give in to every inclination of this body? I could probably talk about that for 10 or 15 minutes, but let me just say this. Here's one good reason. Your body's temporary. Your cravings are fleeting. There are things that I thought I desperately needed when I was 15 years old that I look back on and go, what were you thinking? I'm 41 now and I'm probably going to say the same thing about what I think I need now when I'm 71. My cravings are fleeting. They're twisted. They're perverted. They lead me to live a life only for myself with no eternal significance. But yet Jesus comes along and says, here's how you live in this life. The way I lived. You depend. You trust. You live by the word of God. Not the word of man. You find your life by losing it. You find joy through self-denial. Not self-indulgence. And you discover life that is eternal by resting in me and the victory that I've won. When I took on flesh without compromising my godness and I died for you. For your sins. I became unrighteous so that you could become righteous. That's who he is. Here's a simple point to wrap this up. And I'm going to read a scripture and then the praise team's going to come. Don't be dismissive of Jesus because you think there's no way he gets you and understands you. Don't be dismissive of Jesus because you think he is some fairy tale figure who walked on the earth about six inches above the ground and never tasted what you've tasted. Listen, let me tell you. He fully took it on. He gets it. He understands. And in his understanding, in his sympathy, he finds us like we are and he invites us into a new kind of life. And that's what the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 as the praise team comes. <clears throat> Since then, we have a great high priest. Who's he talking about? It's Jesus. Jesus is our high priest who has passed through the heavens. 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But who, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us then draw with confidence, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Would you draw near to Jesus this morning? Would you perhaps discover life in Him? New life, eternal life? Could you who know Him and follow Him now find renewed hope, fresh energy, renewed joy, confidence in God through Jesus who knows exactly where you are, and he's been exactly where you've been. He feels what you feel. He's felt what you felt. And he led the way for us to overcome, even in the most difficult of circumstances, by showing us how to depend and trust on our God so that we don't fall victim to the brokenness, to the sin, to the tragedy, to the injustice, to the, the storm that we're in. There's new life in Him. And I think it can be discovered and rediscovered by just simply praying this prayer, Lord, I need You. I need You. That's the beginning of self-denial is you recognize your own weakness and inadequacy and you trust in Him and His strength. So you could come to that place this morning and just simply say, Lord, I need you. And that's what this song is going to help us do. It's what it's going to help us pray. So as the Spirit leads you, sing it in faith. Pray it in faith. Let's stand together. I know that your word is powerful, O oh Lord. I know that your word bears fruit and increases wherever it goes. I know that it is eternal. And I know that though my mind and my mouth are finite and frail, you can take all that we've talked about today and you can make it powerful. You can transform hearts and minds. And so... I pray, Lord, that for those you are drawing and to yourself, that you would, by your Spirit, help us sing this in faith. Lord, we need you. Thank you for that. In your name I pray. Amen. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.